This is an ABC podcast. Hello there, welcome to the minefield. We try to negotiate the ethical, moral dilemmas of modern life. Occasionally they become, I was going to say, Lego political, but maybe a better way of saying it would be politico legal. Politico legal, nice one. That sounds more elegant, doesn't yeah. it? It's Scott, uh, Scott Stevens, to whom I'm just, I don't know, asking vain questions. He's my co host. Waleed Ali is my name. Um, I, do you know, I, can we just pause before we get into Please. the nuts and bolts of today's topic? Mm. Today's show is addressing certain questions around the First Nations voice to parliament. And I just think it's worth pausing to say we're on the cusp of a referendum and that's a historic moment. Mm. Like I think something about that has been lost, I think, as we do what we have to do, which is, you know, have a debate in whatever form about how we might vote and so on. But they don't come around. I voted in one referendum in my life. It was the Republic referendum. And it just doesn't, it does not happen very often. And if this one fails, I suspect we probably don't vote on the Republic referendum again. Like, you know, it's, I find it hard to imagine the Albanese government putting this one up, having it fail, and then going to another one that might fail. I, mm. I mean, that's just my read of the political play. So you may not get a chance to vote in a referendum for, for quite a long time. And I, I, I don't know, Scott, maybe I'm in a whimsical mood or something, but I, I feel there is something about acknowledging when you're in a moment that is historic because when you're in the moment, you you very rarely recognise it. And suddenly later you look back on it and you go, oh, yeah, right, I should have paid more attention to what that whole process was like. I think one of the fascinating things about a referendum is that it is the closest we come to something like direct democracy, um, which has all sorts of dangers associated with it. Uh, the fact that it's a straight up and down yes or no answer. Uh, the fact that there is virtually no compromise, there's no negotiation after the fact, unlike the way that political parties uh, may, there's no intervening representative after the fact. Um, it really is one of those moments where the full weight, if you like, of democratic participation ought to be felt by those who are taking part in it. There are all sorts of issues that we hear about today where we are told right up front the time for debate, the time for deliberation is over. Um, I'm in the process of writing a response to an academic paper. And one of the arguments in that academic paper is the uh, habits and practices of democratic deliberation may well have served uh, advanced nations well on any number of issues. But on this particular issue, it serves us badly indeed. Therefore, the time for democratic deliberation is over. The time for political action has begun. I don't want to evaluate the merits of the particular response or the particular issue, which is a very, very, very serious issue. No, but I can tell you will hate the form of that argument. I hate the form of the argument. Can I ask you a question, though? Yes, please. Is that not... Sorry, I don't want to veer too much. Maybe, maybe I'm not. Actually, I don't think we're veering at all, by the way. Okay, okay, yeah. good. Then, I, then I'll feel confident in asking you this question. Is that not the nature of any rights claim, though? Hmm. So when you make a rights claim, I don't mean this to apply to the voice to parliament because I don't know that that's quite a rights yeah. claim. I feel it's a slightly different thing. But, anyway. but um, let's say something that falls within the realm of human rights. It could be, um, let's choose something uncontroversial. Well, that was uncontroversial at least until uh, 9-11, which is the prohibition on torture. Yeah. So this is something, the whole point of rights is that you don't get to vote on them. Mm. As in, there is no democratic deliberation or to put it another way, the time for democratic deliberation is over. Or you could say has passed. Well, I don't know what the difference is, but okay. I mean, I maybe a more precise way of saying it would be there was never a time for democratic deliberation mm -hmm. on mm -hmm. this. These rights exist. And then it, that takes you down a whole different line of inquiry about, well, you know, from where does the right get its existence? And so, okay, there's so on. I, I get you could do this forever. But just as a broad principle, I understand that you object to that style of argument. I'm inclined to object to it as well. But there is that asterisk, isn't there? There is that caveat that says that is the nature of any rights claim. Mm. 
Would you disagree with that? No, no, I, I wouldn't, which is why I think rights claims should be sparing. I think they should be made essentially with a capital R. Um, we reach a point where this becomes one of the bedrocks, one of the conditions of possibility of our life together, which means violating this particular claim has achieved something whereby we place something in the category of the undiscussable, uh, even if something catastrophic were to arise, even if something so serious that it would sharpen our deliberations to the point that it's no longer simply convenient or relaxed, but is rather almost existential. We've reached the point where this is a moment where we hold our collective identity, our identity as a people and the moral substance of that people in our hands. I think this is where you're going. I think, I think rights claims are important. I think that they ought to be sparing because when we make them, we are saying something about who we are, about what we will not discuss any further. Um, and I do think this is a problem within human rights discourse. Yes. Can uh, you say why? Because I think the concept of human rights has now become so vast. Yes, I think that's right. So expansive. The, the rights themselves almost reach the point at certain crucial moments of being incommensurable. Well, that's certainly true, mm. which is why you get these moments where you have trade-offs. But what I mean is so much now can be, if you want to be, if you're a human rights lawyer, for example, so much can be couched as a human rights claim that it threatens to subsume entirely the political. Mm. I mean, I'm offering this as an illustrative example. I haven't heard anybody do this, but I could easily imagine you could make a human rights claim in respect of interest rate rises. Right? You could probably fashion that. Mm. So vast has human rights discourse become. So this is where I think there is a, a latent, maybe it's not even latent, danger that you really remove the notion of democratic deliberation altogether if you're not careful. Can I? Which is, I think, partly what you're responding to. Now, I don't know the paper that you're dealing with. I know nothing about it. All I know is what you've just said. But could you not see that paper in a similar guise, though, as saying here is a rights claim? Yes. Yes, of course. And you but, just reject the rights claim in that particular paper. Yeah, but can I actually put you... And again, I'm not, I'm not addressing the topic. I'm not addressing the paper here. But okay. can I just push you one step further about the other thing that I think too many human rights claims or the predominance of human rights discourse, the other thing that it does, it doesn't just cut out the political. I also think it runs the very real risk of isolating or curtailing that which is essentially personal in so much of our political deliberations. So let me just give a very simple example. You might want to say that uh, a rise in interest rates, uh, or you might want to say, for instance, uh, the vast reduction or uh, unavailability of affordable housing or of affordable, healthy fruits and vegetables uh, are human rights violations, that we have a human right to sort of shelter, to mm. nourishment, to the wherewithal we need for autonomy and health and liberty and, and so on. That might get you a certain distance, to put it in that kind of capital H, capital R language, could get you a certain distance. In other words, this is not just a matter of discretionary choices, but these are things that really do undermine the conditions of human well-being. But then if you were to say, this is the humiliation that the inability to find a house and to be able to house my children safely, this is what it does to me. This is the humiliation that having to resort that these sorts of foods and this lack of nutrition does to me and to the people who are under my care. And you could even say, and this is something that I think we've both learned from Raymond Gaeta, that in response to someone whose body has been violated and broken, almost the worst response that you could make to that is, oh my God, this person has had their human rights violated. There's something needlessly sterile about that language that doesn't approach the proper register of pain, of degradation, of humiliation that that person has undergone. In other words, it's not so much that human rights language takes us out of the more moderate realm of political deliberation and discourse, but it also puts us out of the more immediate and emotionally and morally inflected realm 
of personal language where we really can say, this is what this person has undergone. This is what life looks like for them. This is the process of humiliation and degradation that they're being frozen out of certain essentials to human well-being uh, has led them to. So I think that in many respects, you could say that human rights language, it doesn't I'm not saying there's no place for it, but its ubiquity can leave us frozen out, I think, of two absolutely necessary forms of language, uh, precisely by through its claim of being in many respects sufficient to register the gravity of that language. Yeah, and also plenary, right? So plenary. It, nice. Yeah. Because it wants to be absolute, really. Is that too strong a word? Universal. Well, universal, certainly. But uh, anyway, it wants to decide the matter. It wants to be dispositive of the issue, mm. whatever issue it might be. So it kind of has to sit at a remove, doesn't it? Mm. Because the minute you then start to make it particular, you open the door for particular exemptions. Yeah, that's right. Or particular objections. Yes, I'm, I understand that you aren't housed, but there's actually no way to house you that wouldn't, I don't know, have too great a, an effect on the budget or that wouldn't impoverish certain other people or whatever. I mean, I don't know. I'm just making these up. But you see what I mean, mm. right? So you come to me with the particularities, I can come back to you with other particularities or other consequences of your particularity. But you come at me with something absolute and plenary. By that mere assertion, you say there is no response to this. And so that's the nature of the claim. Yeah. Anyway, you um, you reassured me that we hadn't veered and now I feel like we've well and truly veered. So could, do you want to explain how we haven't? Yeah. It seems to me that one of the ways in which we honor our underlying democratic commitments is by adopting those forms of language and those mechanisms and modes of ongoing communication that uphold something like our most fundamental beliefs about what we owe one another within a democratic society. It's very easy for us to opt for forms of politics in the name of that particular mode of politics uh, suitability uh, or translatability into different contexts. And you would say, wouldn't you, Willie, that one of the things a human rights language purports to do is to be translatable from context to context. You can suppose it, like this is one of its great claims, wasn't it? You can apply the language of human rights outside of certain jurisdictions, outside of particular political orders, in order to register something like a common moral or legal vernacular uh, within which those claims could be heard by other groups who mightn't have undergone the same trauma, the same violations. But it is part, I think, of the very nature of an adaptable, of a morally defensible democratic order that it tries to find the best ways of facilitating the forms of moral communication that uphold, I think, the two fundamental bases of any morally or politically justifiable democracy. And that is what we would call, I think, uh, moral equality. Uh, moral equality is what we essentially mean by dignity, isn't it? Moral equality is what attends to human beings in their quality, in their virtue, as human beings. It's what allows human beings to stand in one another's company and not bow their head and not shield their eyes. It's the ability to stand and greet one another and speak to one another as equals uh, in the assurance that your voice can in fact be heard. That's moral equality. That's human dignity. Uh, but the other bedrock, I think, of really any morally or politically justifiable democratic culture would be what we'd call political equality, the ability to take part equally in our political systems. This was what we would essentially call, isn't it? This would be representation, the ability to speak within certain political contexts and to have one's voice heard as a way of shaping the quality, the future, uh, the shape of our shared life together. And You're I think within a democratic formation. Yeah, that's right. Or, yeah, yes. right. Okay. I mean, yeah. I, I don't think there's anything too controversial about either of those claims, that part of the no. underlying justifiability of any democracy is that it holds those two things together, moral equality and political equality, or what, what we would call, I think, dignity and voice. Reminding ourselves, of course, that it is essential to the very substance of democracy that those who are ruled, ruled by their own consent, which is just another way of saying they have a 
voice. They have a say in the shaping yeah. of the conditions of our common life. Ab initio, yes. But where this gets fuzzy at the edges, I think, is where some of those where, where we deem some of those things to have been forfeited. Mm. An example I might give um, is wow, this is interesting. <laughs> what? <laughs> Go on. Well, the attempts I think ultimately failed in Australia to strip the right to vote from prisoners. That's right. Yeah, go on. Um, Well, no, there's an example. I mean, the fact that it failed is interesting. It really is interesting. (laughs) Um, Yeah, and perhaps makes your point. But the fact that it was conceivable and I think passed by a democratically elected government tells you that there is a sense, even within democratic formation, and sorry, passed with no real objection. There was no, we didn't have a big public argument about this. It became a high court case. Mm. That's how it became overturned. But it tells you that there is this idea that exists within, probably within the demos, that these rights aren't inalienable. Mm. You can alienate them by your behaviour. Mm-hmm. So it depends on how you're presenting these principles. Do you, do you mean them to be inalienable? Um, there are things that someone could do as part of a body politic that would place them outside of, I think, the sphere of political equality. It doesn't Mm. seem to me that there's anything that can be done within the context of a morally justifiable or morally justified or grounded democracy that could place someone outside of the reach, outside of the bounds of moral equality. Moral equality. That would strip them of does their... That, okay, yeah. does, does that mean that it is impossible for a democracy worthy of the name to have a death penalty? I have a certain conviction about this. Um, I'm not after your conviction. I'm after what is the necessary consequence of what you just said. So in other words, do you have to say... If you're going to hold moral equality and voice to be essential and necessary elements of democratic life, Mm -hmm. must you then hold that a death penalty is democratically impermissible? Mm. Uh, Believe it or not, I would probably place death penalty and the permissibility of torture in two different moral categories. I think torture under all circumstances in precisely the way that it violates the very dignity of the person by turning their body against them, by making their body into an object of vileness and humiliation that bears the pain to the soul of the person. Uh, And not as justiciable punishment. That's right. But as tool, right, for information or whatever. There is an argument that death penalty can be carried out in a way uh, to which the person who is undergoing it may in fact consent. Um, but in it other doesn't words, require their consent. No, no, it doesn't. Um, in other words, it could be done without humiliation. Okay. Mm. All right. And thereby preserve a certain moral equality. Yeah, that's right. Even as you terminate the life. Yeah. And thereby the voice. Yes. I don't agree with that. Uh, but very sophisticated political philosophers have made that precise case. Okay. All right. So why are we talking about all this? We've actually done a lot of homework or a lot of groundwork. (laughs) It's going to set us up, I think, for a really nice conversation. Um, Look, anybody who's been following the debate over the voice to parliament, the referendum, as Waleed said, is coming up later this year. It's scheduled for October. We haven't gotten a date, though, have we? Uh, I don't think so. I think the 14th is what's mooted, but I don't think we have one yet. So that debate has reached, I think, what we can call with some justification a kind of tipping point. So a couple of landmarks or hurdles have been cleared. The uh, legislation establishing the referendum has been passed in the House of Representatives at the end of May. It was carried by 121 MPs voting for versus 25 voting against. It's now going over to the Senate where it's due to be voted on in the third week of June. So that's a significant milestone, I think. Uh, And after the legislation is in place, the campaigns, the yes and no campaigns are already very much underway. But I think it's fair to say that once the legislation is passed, that there's a kind of – there's an umbrella of seriousness that covers the entire affair. 
The other thing I think that we've seen, Walid, and I'm, I am interested in your thoughts about this, is that opinion polling surrounding The Voice has begun to take a particular direction since January this year. There has been a, it hasn't been a steep decline, but there has been a decline uh, in those who have said that they intend to vote yes in the upcoming referendum. There has been an increase in those who have stated that they're going to vote no. There has been a slight shrinkage or a slight contraction in the number of undecideds, but it, that still is, is variable. I think what is interesting off the back of some recent essential polling is that the number of hard yeses, what they've classified as hard yeses, have shrunk by about 5% uh, since February this year. The number of what they describe as hard no's has increased by about 10% since February this year. Uh, and many of the other markers across other polls have more or less, not to quite the same degree, but have more or less followed the same pattern. There's been a decline in the number of yeses. There's been an increase in the number of no's. So that the biggest difference that we can see at the moment in the, in I guess, the most reputable polling is that it currently stands at the outermost limit at about 60% yes, 40% no, if People are given an, uh, an absolute choice, not maybe or not undecided. And other opinion polls, including those conducted by Nine and by NewsPoll, uh, it has it very, very much closer to a dead heat. Um, it's kind of mid-40s on both fronts uh, with a substantial number of, of undecideds. This isn't surprising, though, is it? No, this was inevitable. It was. Why do you think? Because that's the nature of any referendum, right? Is what, this is the bare pit of referenda is such that when the acid gets put on a proposal, unless it's a proposal that is just so simple and obvious and very often mechanical, the no case will always grow in strength. Mm. Because unless you perceive you're dealing with an immediate and urgent crisis of the kind that, I don't know, the dismissal might have precipitated or something mm. like that. As in, we need a solution to this within the next few months, right? Unless you perceive that, the status quo will always grow in appearing safer than a step into the unknown as the arguments are agitated. And this is the nature of constitutional change, of course, is that it's not technically, but for all intents and purposes, permanent. This is why referenda are very hard to win. So it was very hard to see a scenario in which the yes vote could grow. Yeah. Um, it was, in my mind anyway, impossible to imagine a scenario where the no case wouldn't grow. Yep. Um, can I just point out that I think three other significant things have happened? Uh, I mean, the aspir let, let's call it the aspirational idea of a voice to parliament. As soon as that entered the realm of political debate it was always going to fall foul of the parian thrust of kind of yes or no and partisan. By which, do you mean the minute it wasn't bipartisan or do you mean the minute it just got debated by politicians? The minute it got debated by politicians, I think, it was going right. to fall. Now, uh, the footnote to that is that we've also seen a kind of ossification of the different positions taken by the party. So the last time we talked about this, it was our first show of the year, as a matter of fact, with Mark McKenna on the nature of Australian referenda. At that point, Julian Leeser uh, was still the shadow attorney general, someone who, while he himself registered a number of concerns about the shape, about the makeup, about some of the details, uh, and about the proper limits or constraints uh, about the voice to parliament and who exactly it would make representations to. He was broadly supportive and has been supportive for quite some time of a voice to parliament as a kind of constitutionally appropriate mechanism. Uh, Julian Lesser, because of the position that was taken by the opposition, is no longer the shadow attorney general. Uh, Jacinta uh, Napajimpa Price is instead the shadow minister for Indigenous Australians, uh, and Michaelia Cash is the shadow attorney general. So in both cases, there's a kind of hardening of the political lines. And with that, we've seen a hardening of the opposition's position concerning the voice. Um, the final and, and its rhetoric, by the way. That's my final point. In, in ways that, that actually contradict the opposition's own position. 
So yes, that's right. This is the observation I've never really been able to understand other than in just purely political terms, which is to say when Peter Dutton argues that the voice is a bad idea because it re-racialises the country, mm-hmm. that's an argument against the voice in toto, isn't it? That's right. It has to be. Yet the opposition's official policy is to support a legislative voice rather than a constitutional one. Mm-hmm. The bit I've never been able to understand, I don't know that maybe there's been an answer I've missed, but I've not heard any explanation of this, is how a legislative voice would not re-racialise the country, but a constitutional one would. Mm-hmm. And that contradiction says to me that that's a, that's a hardening of rhetoric. That's making arguments against the voice that don't stem from the party's policy conviction in the first instance. Yes, that's right. And couldn't have stemmed from the party's policy conv- conviction unless that conviction has changed unannounced. That's the, that's the only way I can square that. Mm. So, I mean, some claims have been made by the opposition. You've already mentioned that it effectively re-racializes the Australian constitution, that it inserts a form of identity politics or, in fact, enshrines a form of identity politics within Australia's political settlement. Uh, The opposition leader, Peter Dutton, has also said that this ushers in a kind of George Orwell animal farm-like world in which all Australians are equal, but some Australians are more equal than others. So beneath that, beneath the rhetoric, and I mean, there are all sorts of objections that I don't think are really worthy of public discussion. In this particular instance, though, there are two objections to the very idea of a voice to parliament that... If we leave the, if it, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. If it confuses you, just vote no. We're going to leave those to the side. These are two objections that go pretty much along these lines. That the proposed voice to parliament essentially violates two of the fundamental principles upon which Australia's political traditions are founded. One is the very principle of equal citizenship and equality before the law. In other words, the equality of individuals and individual equality before the law. And then the introduction of something like a kind of group politics within the Australian liberal political order, uh, liberal there in the small case L rather than the party political, by introducing or enshrining a particularly divisive form of identity politics within public life. And I think what's interesting there about the use of this mightn't be the way in which people who are objecting are using the term identity politics, but this is what I understand by it. That what identity politics fundamentally is, is a kind of group claim that is made that is, and the kind of claim that is unanswerable to those outside of the group. In other words, the claim is made and it must be heeded. It cannot be deliberated with. Now, If that were the case, if this were a kind of unanswerable body of selected people with whom no political conversation can be had, but who must sit over our legislative life, with whom no form of democratic conversation can be undertaken, but who must simply be heeded then that complaint, that objection, that it introduces a form of identity politics, in other words, a kind of uh, moral or political disparity, an illegitimate form of elevation, uh, the equivalent of a kind of House of Lords, if you like, then I think that would be an objection that really should be taken seriously and should be taken seriously enough that it sinks the very possibility of this kind of innovation within our political traditions. What we want to talk about here, though, is the extent to which those two claims, that it's a violation of the principle of equal citizenship or the equality of persons under the law, and that introduces a form of group politics or or unanswerable identity politics within Australia's political life. It seems to me that those are the most serious objections. And I I, I think, Waleed, and it's, it's not, you know, it's not our place to barrack for yes or no uh, on this show. Uh, We're not trying to advocate one side or the other. But what we can do, I think, and what we should do is to say, are these accurate representations of Australia's underlying political traditions? Is it such that the voice really is the kind of thing that could jeopardize or risk those traditions? Or is it the kind of innovation that can take place within a just and morally justifiable democratic culture that renews or in fact reinvigorates the very spirit of those traditions. Have I, have I characterised the task before yep. us? I think you've done it very well, and I think we need expert help. 
Our guest is Duncan Iverson. He's professor of political philosophy at the University of Sydney. He's the author of Can Liberal States Accommodate Indigenous Peoples? I should also say, if you permit me, he's also the author of a really fabulous and I think a particularly insightful and important article. It's just recently appeared on ABC Religion and Ethics uh, on The Voice and Australia's Political Traditions. Duncan, oh, thank you so Scott, much. Scott, would you say Good it was a particularly well-edited piece? Oh, it didn't it need much. Well it didn't need much <laughs> editing. But Duncan, thank you and welcome to The Minefield. My pleasure. Great to be with you. Uh, look, uh, take it away. Um, you've heard us set up the issues and set up, I think, some of the fundamental questions at stake. We've also traversed an awful lot of territory to give you a kind of smorgasbord that you might want to pick from. Uh, Where do you want to take us? Look, um, what an amazing introduction to this topic. I mean, one thing I I thought I'd go back to the very beginning, I think it was Waleed who talked about, or you, Scott, just pausing on the kind of historic nature of this. I think that's a really interesting and important point. You know, the, the wonderful German philosopher Hannah Arendt talked about politics as connected in some profound way with newness or or new beginnings. You know, she had a a way of putting it called sort of natality, giving mm-hmm. birth to something. And I think I think that is really important to remind people about. If only we could kind of inject that into the political debate around the voice, uh, I think it would help. So I, I, I do think we're 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 in this kind of new space of thinking about how we can reconcile what I think are two really big questions for the Australian public. One is what is the appropriate place of Indigenous Peoples First Nations in the Australian polity? And then second, how do we reconcile that with our liberal democratic institutions as as you said? What's the what's the mechanism for doing that? What's the alignment? What's the resonance between that initial challenge and everything that comes with it, our history, our identity, uh, the the present sort of disadvantages that everyone agrees are unacceptable with the best account of Australia's liberal democratic institutions. So I think we are in a kind of new space and it's uncomfortable. And as Waleed said, um, the binary nature of a referendum in some ways doesn't really lend itself to potentially the rich conversation we need. Look, the other thing I'd say is on the whole issue of kind of identity politics. I mean, I think there are two ways of thinking about identity politics. And one way is to think of it as either a conversation stopper or a conversation starter or a conversation enabler. What are the kinds of claims that enable pluralistic, complex publics to work through these issues? I'm a big fan of the American political philosopher John Dewey's conception of democracy as democracy gives you two things, right? It gives you dignity, but it also gives you a way of working through problems together. And he talked about publics being called forth in working through problems together. And I think that's really the way I've tried to think through these issues myself and and, and tried to write about it. How do we collectively work through the challenge of reconciling the appropriate place for First Nations in Australia's institutions in its in the country in the polity with those important liberal democratic values that uh, are are core to to those institutions and you know I I'm hoping that we're we're still there's still time to in a sense have that conversation in in a kind of Deweyan way in a problem-solving way rather than in the kind of binary way that referendums can can tend to generate can I just can I before you jump in Willie and I know you I can anticipate perhaps where you want to go. Can I ask just one question, Duncan, about the nature of conversation, though? Because mm. one of the things that I guess does concern me when we use a colloquialism like conversation about what it is that takes place in politics is it doesn't feel like we really mean it. Uh, much mm. the same way as when we talk about persuasion, we think about sort of two people really trying to draw on the best angels of one another's nature to try to get them to one side or the other. But most often, when a particularly progressives talk about persuasion, what they mean is the various ways that we can adopt to try to get you over to our side. Uh, the idea that uh, in a genuine sight of persuasion, there really could be something like okay, dare I say, a third way or maybe something that neither of the parties uh, had previously envisaged. You know, something surprising can happen. It seems to me that if we really want to talk about democratic conversations, and Dewey was quite explicit about this, Mm. we mustn't prejudge the outcome of the conversation before we engage in the conversation. The very nature of conversation, uh, especially if we think about conversation as, as, 
as exacting a kind of moral demand on participants is we don't know how we're going to be different as a result. No, no, that's right. And I think that ideal informs a lot of the sort of political theory or political philosophy around democratic deliberation or democratic conversation. The reason I, I kind of hang on to the word conversation is in part it, it sort of cuts across different traditions, right? From the, the, the famous conservative philosopher Michael Oakeshott's conversation of mankind across to the more um, sort of progressive democratic tradition. The reason I hang on to that also is because it's multi-layered, right? So you're right. We often start and, and our political debates are structured by polarities and, and dichotomies and, and, and binary positions. But it's also a complex field, right? You have you have a conversation that's initiated by a legal judgment. You have a conversation that's initiated by a social movement. You have a conversation that's initiated by an event. You have a conversation that's initiated by a crisis. You have debates in parliament. You have referend. Indeed, you have referenda. So a conversation, we don't have to model it on, on the kind of philosophy seminar. It, it, it happens in multiple places, in different sort of alleyways and streets of the city, if I can, if I can use that metaphor. And, you know, I think it's a, it's a much richer uh, idea. And it, I think it sort of keeps us open to our ideas being changed or shaped in different ways. Maybe not initially, maybe not even within the, the particular frame of the, of the initial or specific discussion we're having. But over time, we know that publics change their mind, that institutions change, that people do uh, move in a different direction. And, and I think, you know, what's challenging with the, the referendum around the voice is, in fact, that's one of the really powerful, innovative claims of the voice, from my perspective, that it is asking us to change the conversation about how we think of the place of Indigenous peoples in our polity. And it's, it's doing that at the same time as we have to change our conversation in order to see that. Mm. And I think that's one of the really deep challenges. And, uh, you know, I think there's still lots of time to have that more positive, affirmative uh, conversation, but it's difficult, as you said, in the current uh, way in which our politics works. Hearing you discuss conversation or describe conversation in that way, Duncan, though, it lends it a kind of informality, a spontaneity, if you like. And I therefore wonder whether or not the highfalutin questions we kind of want to talk about on this show, such as the voice's compatibility or otherwise with the canons of liberalism, etc., are conversations that matter at all. Because Australia, okay, are we having a conversation, when we talk about the voice, are we having a conversation about liberalism or are we having a conversation of our sense of, sorry, about our sense of the way things kind of do and should work and liberalism informs that perhaps in ways we don't even acknowledge or perceive in which case, is the consistency with liberalism or otherwise relevant? Or is oh, look, it just about mm. the entrails, sort of the, the, the markers that liberalism might have left behind in, on our consciousnesses, but oh, even look, in I ways mean, that we don't I, perceive? I think it is. I mean, look, I think it is. It's not, not at every moment, not in every instance. And, you know, it, you can get kind of depressed watching the, you know, the news if that's all you're <laughs> thinking about. Um, but, look... I, I do think there are some really important fundamental issues that are emerging, as Scott mentioned in the introduction, right? So what does it mean to be an equal citizen in Australia today? What does it mean um, to have a voice in politics today? What does it mean to be equal before the law? What is the appropriate relationship between the parliament uh, and the courts or the parliament and the broader public sphere? What does equality, what does it mean to be treated equally? Um, these ideas are all kind of there. And at various points, they kind of emerge and erupt and and we, we start to get to the heart of the matter. I think what's been a bit frustrating for me, and hopefully it's coming, is just seeing these questions and, and thinking through these important issues in the sort of affirmative way that I think the, the, the yes side hasn't really had a chance to put yet. And I think that's what's been missing. But I, but I do think, you know, if you interpret, say, Dutton's arguments as charitably as possible, there is a fundamental question there that he's posing, which is, is the voice compatible with what we understand equal citizenship to mean in Australia today? And, you know, he has a particular view about that. What we haven't really got yet I've tried to do that in the piece on your website and other places, is, is what's the yes response or what's the yes case for why it is the voice is compatible and indeed is a is an attractive interpretation of what 
it means to be an equal citizen or what equality means uh, in Australia today, given our history. Given isn't, isn't the, the answer to that? I, I don't know if maybe the Yes campaign hasn't made their answer explicit, but I feel like it's been fairly easily discoverable within the way sure. the case is being put, which is really just the age-old distinction between formal and substantive inequality, right? So best way to explain this is equality on paper versus equality of experience. Uh, for example, a court that does not provide interpreters to anybody mm. gives formal equality to everybody, but substantive inequality to people who don't speak the language that the court's conducting, so English here, and they have to come and they don't get an interpreter, so they can't. Um, now, would you say providing an interpreter is treating people unequally? Uh, in a formal sense, that's obviously what it's doing. Would you say that it's providing substantive equality? Well, the argument would be that, yes, the only way equality of any kind of meaningful uh, stripe can be realised is for the interpreter to be provided. The voice provides a similar sort of function. Here you are looking at a, a, a kind of deep, deeply rooted inequality in our society that has to do with its founding and um, that equality has only been exacerbated by the absence of um, Indigenous voices being heard and mm. Indigenous voices feeding into policy. We therefore establish an institution for that purpose um, to have the ear or to be able to speak to the ear of government. We need to institutionalise it because the absence of an institution has meant that it just hasn't been heard. So this, this by institutionalising it, we make it hearable and we therefore achieve some kind of substantive equality. That's the best way I could put the argument. Now, then the next question becomes, well, is that liberalism or is that a departure from liberalism? Is that saying, well, liberalism only recognises the individual and the state, it doesn't recognise these group claims, and therefore this is a failure of liberalism and we need to depart from liberalism, or would we rather say, no, liberalism is a broad enough school that all of this can fit within it? Well, look, I mean, I think my own view is that it's, it's definitely a broad enough school and it's very much... Uh, aligned with liberal tradition, however, however you interpret it. I mean, I think these arguments about substantive equality are always hard to make, and you have to remake them, and you have to put them in the context of the particular community within which you are making that claim. So, you know, my own view is if if you look at the, the history of liberal tradition, if you look at the way in which contemporary liberal uh, political philosophy is discussed, if you look at political practice, you can see these these ideas of formal and substantive equality in constant relation to each other. There's, there's a phrase that the American political philosopher John Rawls used, which I quite like for all the other issues there are with Rawls, we'll put that aside, um, called the fair value of the political liberties. And, mm. and the old idea within that is this idea that you need both the negative freedoms that protects you from the harm that the state and, and we can do to each other, the freedom of assembly, of speech, of worship, of whatnot. But you, at the same time, you need the positive liberties or the public freedoms that enable you to shape the laws that you are subject to along with your fellow citizens. So the sort of public freedom and the private freedom go together. And, and, and that is a deep idea in, in liberal tradition. And in, in, I think one of the best ways of interpreting the voice is, is a claim to bring those two things together in the case of the appropriate place for First Nations in our in our polity, and it actually goes back to just to go back a minute to where you where you guys started about this debate between, you know, the nature of rights and rights claims and versus democratic claims. I mean, think of an alternative way of justifying the voice. One alternative way would have been to say, for some kind of right of self determination or right of self government to be implanted in the constitution, to make that a more impregnable claim. I think to use one of the words that either Scott or or you used. And, and that exists elsewhere, right? In Canada, you've got mm, Aboriginal, right. Aboriginal treaty rights entrenched in the Constitution, in the Bill of Rights. Now, there was a conscious choice by the Indigenous leadership not to go down that path. That, mm. to me, is what is the innovation of the voice. And they're not relying, as in the US, on a domestic dependent nation status crafted in the 19th century by mm. the Supreme Court. It's they're asking to embed a form of democratic conversation in the structure of our polity. And I think that's the innovation. And, and it brings together, I think, these two powerful uh, aspects of the liberal tradition around the protection of 
the, the sort of negative liberties to enable us to pursue the lives we value alongside the protection of those positive freedoms, those democratic freedoms okay. that allow us it's, also to, to do that together. The problem this raises is if we're going to frame this around uh, some notion that is like substantive equality, the question that you will immediately run into is, well, then we have to establish a voice for every disadvantaged group, right? And here, just name your group, let the bidding begin. And this is the Identity Politics Project writ large, right? This is, mm. this is the idea. It seems to me the only reasonable answer to that would be to argue the special, unique and unrepeatable case of Indigenous Australians in that theirs is, they are the original inhabitants of the land and they're, they're displaced. There's an act of dispossession for them that can apply to nobody else. And so that therefore they do have a special status can only ever apply to them and a legitimate place within the constitution expressed via the voice. So you couldn't have a migrant voice enshrined in the constitution, no matter how disadvantaged migrants became in Australia, because they are not original inhabitants who were dispossessed. In other words, there's a kind of, if you like, and I hesitate to use these terms, but a kind of original sin involved here and that this is targeting that. And every other sin that might exist is not original and therefore doesn't receive the same. Now, it seems to me the minute you do that, you might be stretching the bounds of liberalism, right? Because the liberal tradition, as you've articulated there, that provides that justification for the voice, that doesn't work on the basis of there being some kind of unique case to do with ontology or something of that nature. I don't it's, think you have to go there, no. indeed. I'm not sure about that. I mean, I, so I don't think, for example, that liberalism entails individualism, right? Certainly it entails a strong concern with individuals and the way in which individuals choose to live their lives and, and the, indeed the associations they form and the values they hold. But it doesn't entail individualism and I don't think it even entails primarily, and this is probably more controversial, uh, a kind of anti uh, uh, sort of social good ontology or anti collective ontology at all. I mean, but, but that's I... not really the, that's not germane to the point I just made though, which is that once you open the liberal canons for group representation on the basis of certain disadvantage, then you open the argument for that to be applied to everybody and you need an argument as to why it doesn't apply to everybody. It only applies to this yeah. particular. I think, so, sorry, Duncan, I'm really eager to hear what you say about this, but I, I do think, Waleed, there's one essential element here that you're missing in making your case, which is the very act of founding, the very constitutional settlement upon which Australia is based involved a peculiar act, let's put it, of humiliation. We would often think of it as dispossession. But if we think about dispossession as something that sort of is like a meteor strike in the past, it continues to have ripples to the moment that leads to mm. an ongoing situation mm. of humiliation. I have no recognition within this order. I have no voice within this order. There is something constitutive about the constitutional settlement itself that means that the very idea of dignity and political equality with which we began, the very idea of dignity and voice, is not immediately, inherently um, realizable within that constitutional with settlement, within that political order, which means that there needs to be something in order to uphold the higher ideals, the inner logic, if you like, of that settlement. There needs to be a particular accommodation that's made consistent with that settlement that allows for the dignity of the first owners, the first peoples of this land to be recognized and that gives their voice the particular, a particular representation, a particular mechanism that would not be available to others precisely as a way of overcoming uh, both that initial act of dispossession and the ongoing effect of political humiliation. But isn't that just a version of the argument that I described? No, it's not. But What's it, different about Anyway, Duncan, I, I don't want to squeeze out your time. No, 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 no. I mean, I think that's a, I think that's a, a nice way of, of putting it, Scott. And I think it, I think Walid was sort of, in a sense, appealing to that when he talked about the, the sort of original sin 
claim. I mean, the only thing I'd say, just as an addition, just to respond to Waleed's sort of objection from a kind of liberal perspective is, of course, it matters crucially how groups are, as it were, located in the political institutions and, and how groups are, in a sense, empowered within institution. I don't think liberalism as a tradition per se is against groups or mm, any kind of group rights or or group claims or groups being accounted for ontologically in some way. I don't think it's against that. I think as a tradition, it's concerned deeply about the exercise of arbitrary power, not only by the state, but by other <laughs> entities in society, including groups and their members. So mm. again, I go back to the point. I mean, what's the, the innovation, I think, about the voice and, and where I think there's an opportunity for the yes case to respond to what I'll call the the considerate or reasonable objection um, that lies beneath some of the rhetoric of a concern with how groups might be empowered through this process. I, I think it's the innovation is is that it's it's about embedding a kind of democratic mechanism in the Australian constitutional order. It's not embedding a unimpeachable group right that stops the conversation. It's about embedding a, a kind of democratic conversation in the very order, on the grounds of the particular history and the particular nature of the exclusion that occurred, uh, not just at the founding, but then continuously and reoccurs. Because, of course, mm. of course the fact is, is that, you know, dispossession sort of continues. I mean, it continues in all kinds of complex ways today. Everyone agrees with that, right? Nobody on either side of the debate says... Hey, everything's working well. Don't it's, if, if it's not broke, don't you know mess yeah, with yeah. it. But everyone agrees it's broken, to, right? My, my so. point is, you have to anchor it in the dispossession claim. You can't anchor it in the exclusion claim no, because you, the exclusion you, claim is open to others. The dispossession claim is not. But but sorry, Willie, the exclusion claim. I think you need to you need to clarify that because you could say that the only way for the claim to be made is in a particular voice. And this actually takes us back to the whole discussion about human rights language. The only way that that claim can be made is in a particular voice that bears a particular tone and language and experience that is simply not available to others and and, and simply cannot find a proper mechanism within the established vernacular, if you like, that, that frequents the halls of liberal politics. Hmm. We're out of time, unfortunately. We need to do a sequel. Um, <laughs> maybe we can get them to delay the referendum so we've got time to discuss it. <laughs> Duncan, it's been enlightening. Thank you so much for joining oh, us today. My pleasure. It's been a great conversation. Thank you. Duncan Iverson's Professor of Political Philosophy at the University of Sydney, our guest for this week's Minefield, uh, which is at an end. We'll see you soon. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.